I titled today's sermon, The Way of Escape. I borrowed the title for the sermon from that Corinthians passage that we read just a little bit earlier where Paul is reflecting on the Exodus, on the crossing of the Red Sea, and on the subsequent journey of Israel in the wilderness after that. What image comes to your mind? It might be helpful for you just to have something in your mind when you think of a great escape, of a way of escape. What do you think about? You think about the movie? If you're an old World War II movie buff, you probably know the movie, The Great Escape, uh, out of a Nazi prison camp. Maybe you think of that. Maybe you think of Clint Eastwood or Escape from Alcatraz. Uh, or maybe if you're a kid, you think of The Hobbit and all of the great escapes that were in the Lord of the Rings uh, movies. Something comes to your mind when you think of escaping. Lauren and I one time had the uh, privilege of visiting uh, Checkpoint Charlie. Checkpoint Charlie was the, the checkpoint that existed between East and West Berlin. And now there is a museum there called the Checkpoint Charlie Museum. And one of the things you can find in the museum is all of these ways that people tried to escape the East and get into the West. All of the inventive, ingenious ways from uh, hollowing out places in the, in the wells of cars to get a person into them, zip lines, tunnels, suitcases, all sorts of ways that people tried to escape and get across to the other side. Our call to worship today, David in Psalm 124, has this great image. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. It is a psalm that celebrates getting out of a great catastrophe. That's our theme today, Israel's great escape and ours. So we look at this first and we say, all right, first Israel's great escape. Like all great escapes, Israel's escape involved a great orchestration. There was all kinds of planning that went into this escape. There were all kinds of details that were worked out. There was the movement of peoples, the movement of materials, supplies that had to be considered, strategic positioning going on in the plan for the great escape, and everything lined up for exactly the right time. However, different from other great escapes, and in fact, different from all of the other ones that I mentioned or that perhaps you are thinking of, is that all of the orchestration regarding this escape is done by God, and it is done by God alone. And I, 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 I tried to emphasize it when I read it. I put it on the front of the bulletin, but verses 13 and 14 make that plainly clear. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see. You think you see Egyptians coming? You wait. You see what God is doing. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. This is not your deal. You are benefiting from it. I'm going to take you out. You're going to have to walk across, but that's about it. I'm going to do everything else that is connected to this. He is the one who is orchestrating all things. Now, one might find those words of Moses to be encouraging, those words of the Lord to be encouraging. That is true. They might also be a little bit of a rebuke. It's not just be silent. A little bit edgy, but it's kind of shut up. 
This is what I'm going to do. Watch what I'm going to do and stop your grumbling, your complaining about this. I'm orchestrating the events that are taking place here. Humanly speaking, from their perspective, from the Egyptians' perspective, from the Israelites' perspective, it looks like God has botched the orchestration. Looks like he got it all wrong. Looks like he set it all up, but he set it up for doom for them. They've got the, the, the wilderness hemming them in on one side so that there's really no way for them to escape quickly from this scenario. They've got the, the Red Sea that is right in front of them. And of course, when the Egyptians look at that, they say, we don't know who, but somebody has botched this. And we are going to go out and get them. They, they think about this and they think, you know, they've been gone for a couple of days. They quickly forget the things that God had taught through the plagues and they think maybe that was all coincidence. And we just lost our entire workforce. We've got fields that have got to get replanted and harvested. We've got bricks that have got to get made. And our whole workforce is standing out there in the wilderness and that doesn't look very tough. It doesn't look like they know where they're going. But the orchestration, of course, is deliberate. It is a deliberate obfuscation. A lot of Asian words in, this, in the sermon today, so if you're into rhyming words, you can write down all the Asian words that go in here. It's an obfuscation, a beclouding, and that works really well because it is a beclouding of minds that is going on here both uh, by way of analogy and also literally that is taking place here. And it is an obfuscation both for Egypt and for Israel. For Egypt, the obfuscation leads to determination. We're going to go out and get them. They're lost, they're wandering, they're not very tough, and they have no idea where they are. Let's go get them. For the Israelites, the obfuscation instead leads to trepidation. They're afraid. And then recriminations. Why did you do this, Moses? Why did you bring us out here? Isn't this what we said? Now, as tempting as it is to go into that, uh, the end of chapter 15, 16, 17, all get into this spirit, this complaining, grumbling spirit of Israel. So as tempted as I am to go down that road right now, uh, we're going to leave that. We're, we're going to let it pass us by right now. And just note that the recriminations begin here. The complaint department is open in earnest at this point in the story. But, of course, the reality is that the orchestration, besides uh, creating this, this determination, trepidation, and recrimination, has three other purposes that are associated with it that are very clear from the text itself. For Egypt, the purpose of the obfuscation, the beclouding, is condemnation or obliteration. Israel isn't trapped. Looks like they're trapped, but the trap is reversed. Israel is the lure to bring Egypt, or at least Pharaoh and his choice, however you want to think of them in modern day terms, Army Rangers, SEAL Team 6, his Marines, his best, to gather up his best, to gather up his forces, and to come out and destroy them. But in reality, it is time for judgment. It is time for the judgment of God to be executed against them, and God, the holy warrior, will use the waters of the sea to consume them. In Exodus chapter 1, 
Pharaoh wanted to use the waters of the Nile to destroy those Hebrew baby boys. And now it's coming back on his head, literally. There's a poetic foom. This is what you intended? Watch. Watch what I will do to you. The hands raised by Moses, the hand and the staff raised by Moses that would affect salvation for Israel would then be raised once again, same hand, same guy, to affect condemnation, to bring those waters back, to close them over the Egyptian army, and to render judgment and condemnation. Those are ominous words that we read. The Egyptians that you see today, you'll never see them again. This is the end for them. For Israel, the purpose of the orchestration is, of course, and this is no mystery, the purpose for Israel is salvation. That's what God is about. We have described, or I've tried to describe over the, the weeks, months now that we've been in Exodus, this, this event as Israel's birth, as her rebirth, as her regeneration, she comes out now through the parted waters. Israel is born. Israel is born again as she comes through and is delivered by God. This is, this may be worth thinking about, reflecting on, this is the fourth great water event that Scripture has recorded for us. In creation, there was chaos. Waters were covering the earth, and God separated the waters and brought forth the dry ground, the dry land on which he would form life for his people. In the flood, the waters bring judgment, but at the same time that they're bringing judgment, the waters are providing deliverance. And the waters recede, and they bring forth dry ground. In the beginning of Exodus, the waters that Pharaoh has in mind for judgment become the exact same waters upon which Moses finds deliverance, finds his salvation, and now we have this great event as well. An event that is at one time a burial and a resurrection. This will be followed in Scripture by other great water events crossing of the Jordan, Jonah, the baptism of Jesus, and the baptism of the church, and that may seem to you like just a series of arbitrary connections, but it is exactly the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, this is a baptism. What you're witnessing right here for Israel is the baptism event of the people of God a burial and a resurrection of Israel that is taking place here, buried and raised in Christ under the cloud, through the sea. Baptism by Moses, baptism into Moses, but Moses as he is a type, 
a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. This is their baptism. And thus, as this chapter ends for us, thus the Lord saved them. He saved Israel. Finally, for God, the purpose of the orchestration is unequivocally clear. God has done it this way. He has set the whole thing up in this way, and here I'll allow you to pick your Asian term for his glorification or his exaltation. Nothing could be clearer from reading this text that Israel, that Egypt, that the whole world may know I'm the Lord. Because there is nothing more important, there is nothing better for the whole world to know except that Yahweh is the Lord. Events are deliberately arranged by God so that no one can make the mistake of thinking that this just happened naturally, coincidentally. And yet, I was raised all my life with hearing just that. I was raised all my life hearing naturalistic explanations for what took place right here. How it is possible that the Nile floods at certain times of the year, maybe they got out just before the floodwaters came back over it, and then Egypt went in and the floods came and they were caught inside of it. In fact, in fact, just this week, someone I was working on the sermon, someone approached me, asked what I was preparing, I said I was preparing this, and they said, by the way, did you know that such things actually happen in Egypt, that there's the, the Nile works in such a way? And I said, please, I'm writing the line right now that this should be unmistakably evident to you as the hand of God, not as some thing that just happened naturally out in the world. One of the uh, commentators, Durham is his name, that I have enjoyed working through with Exodus, puts it this way, Yahweh is the one who made the rescue, not tides, not storms, not bad planning, not tactical error, not bad luck or good luck, but Yahweh. God did it. And Israel, at least for this day of days, at least on this particular day, Israel feared Yahweh, believed in Him, and in Moses, His servant. That's a good day. What about us? What are the ramifications, implications, applications, whatever relations you want to think about? How does this relate to us? How do we get hold of this? All of us find ourselves situationally, circumstantially, at various times in our lives up against it, stuck. We're in a jam. We're in a hard place, however it is you phrase it. Somehow we need escape from some situation, some difficulty in which we find ourselves. And, and the question that I have is when, when that happens, should we reflect or should I reflect on something like the Exodus and say, Lord, well, you got Israel out of Egypt. Now, will you help me with this test? Will you get my sails up? Will you give us victory, our team victory, over this formidable football, soccer, baseball, hockey opponent that we've got? Because you got Israel out of Egypt, or more seriously than perhaps those 
deliver me from this illness, deliver me from addiction, deliver me from depression, because you got Israel out of Egypt, or thinking of it more corporately and, and on a very broad level. Lord, you got Israel out of Egypt, end slavery, get rid of this oppressive government or this war or this torture. Is that the way it works? Is that the application for us of Exodus? And here's my response to that. 98% no. I'm going to give you 2%. You can hold on to 2%. And, and the 2% is this. The Exodus does reveal God to be a God who keeps His covenantal promises, who loves His people, who is merciful, and who does deliver. That's good. Now, I would suggest to you that rather than pray in a tight spot regarding the Exodus, that you might find other passages in Scripture that would be more apropos, that would be better things for you to count on with regards to God using all events in this world for His good and glory, for our good, His glory, or because He is a merciful God. But 2%, if you want it, you can have it in those situations. But mostly, 98% of the time, that is not. It is not the application that you and I should walk away from with a passage like this. So what should we do? Two things. The first lesson, the lesson of Exodus, actually, it's the lesson of the whole Bible, is that everybody needs to escape. Every single person is caught, naturally at least, in and of ourselves at least, in, as David puts it, the snare of the fowler, the cage. We are all in bondage, not to alcoholism, not to a test or to a bad job or a difficult relationship we may have with somebody. But everybody needs escape from the bondage that is created by sin. We are held fast in bondage by Satan working through our sin, and the result will be our condemnation. Moses is not sufficient to get you safe. In fact, Moses wasn't sufficient to get the Israelites safe either. God did it. God did it. You need Jesus. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is the one who has defeated Satan on your behalf. He is the one who withstood the temptation of Satan before he started in his public ministry. He is the one who, through his resurrection, defeated death itself and all the powers of hell. And he is the one who, through his ascension, sits enthroned at the right hand of God and leads us in a victory parade through that ascension. You are not sufficient to deliver you. You cannot try to ford that river on your own. 
no matter what the song says. That one you can't afford. That one you need to get behind Jesus who has provided for you the way of escape, who has provided for you dry ground. Be silent, walk across. That's all you got to do. Be silent and walk across. We Protestants, particularly we Reform, like to talk about justification by faith. Good. But Israel's faith didn't get them across. You got that, right? We have a very deliberate statement about what Israel was doing before they got across, and it's not being faithful. They're not singing, great is thy faithfulness, and then God comes and delivers them. They're complaining. They are grumbling. For those of you who are theologians, you can tuck this aside, think about it later. Ordo salutis type issue, order of salvation type issue. This is their regeneration. This is their spiritual regeneration. As a result of the regeneration, they will believe. But it's God through his grace, through his mercy, that takes this grumbling, complaining people and leads them to safety. Egyptians won't save you, and you can't save yourself any more than Israel could save herself in this situation. Now note, God's escape routes are not typically gilded. They do not have gold edges along them. Your Bible might, escape routes don't. The Red Sea didn't look like an escape route. It looked like death, right? This is the sea that is right behind us. And even when the waters were parted, they're, they're, they're on the sides, left, right, hemming them in. It didn't look safe. And an 80-year-old man with a hand raised and a stick in his hand doesn't look like much of a way out. But listen, the cross doesn't look like much of a way out either. It, too, looks like death. And a man with his hands spread out doesn't look like much of a deliverer, and yet there he is. The man spread out with his hands nailed in place, a cross, an instrument of death, shame, and torture, becomes by the powerful hand of God, the exact means that God chooses to humble the world, to shame them, and to take his people to safety. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and live. But there's a second lesson, and I'm only going to do two. There's a second lesson from this passage as well. And it's based on the way that Paul, in that 1 Corinthians 10 passage, reflects on this incident and the way the rest of the Old Testament reflects on this incident. Now, we don't have time to go back right now and go through all of the Old Testament thinking about this incident. Of course, when they reflect on it, they reflect on this great deliverance with thanksgiving. Even David in Psalm 124 is, is, is thanking God for such deliverance. But the question quickly becomes, on the other side of the Red Sea, 
How do you walk? How do you live on the other side? And the consensus of the Old Testament and the consensus of the New Testament and that passage that we just read from 1 Corinthians 10 is that Israel didn't walk well. With most of them, and this is the direct quote, God was not pleased, and they died in the wilderness, 23,000 in one day. Escape is good. Getting on the other side is great. It's really wonderful. Walk well when you get to the other side. You got to take, and this is where the battle, this is where the application actually is. The application, if you are already a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Exodus to your life is in your daily struggle with sin. That may not seem as flashy as seas and Egyptian armies and waters piled up and all those things, but it is there that the rubber meets the road in terms of whether or not you have embraced such a great salvation that has been offered to us. That's Paul's entire point. The great way of escape was made for you. You didn't have to do anything, nothing. Just walk through. And God says, now walk well. Walk well on the other side. Take up this exact same thing. I have provided for you in your daily struggle against sin a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So Paul, using the metaphor here, basically when you get on the other side, he says, he says therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, when you get on the other side, don't take that salvation for granted. You can be assured of it, but don't take it for granted. Don't get on the other side and go, this is awesome. I, I, there's nothing that can take me across now. I'm safe. I can do whatever I want to do. Take heed, lest you fall. That is the call that we have here. God will provide a way of escape when you are struggling, not with a test, not with a hard team that you're getting ready to play. That's not the point. But when you're struggling with anger, when you're struggling with covetousness, when you're struggling with idolatry, and you're putting things in your life before God, whatever those things are, when you're struggling with sexual immorality, when you're facing your computer screen and you're trying to figure out, do I do an inappropriate search or not, that's when crossing the Red Sea makes the difference. Because as much as God provided a way of escape to get you to the other side, the way of escape is provided in that situation as well. It is the same one. It is through Christ. It is not any different. It is the exact same way of escape that you, that we may be able to endure it. May God use this power displayed here in our salvation to call us to sanctification, to growth in Him, to applying this passage, not 
not only for our salvation, but for our life in Christ and walk with him as well. So the call to you, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you believe in him today. You cross over from death to life. You know Jesus Christ. You take this home and you lay it right on top of one of the struggles of sin that you have got in your life right now. And say, Lord, you have secured for me the means of escape. No temptation has overtaken you, has overtaken me, that is not common to man. All of us have experienced it, whatever form it is. But God is faithful. And with the temptation will provide the way of escape that we may be able to endure it. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. Let's pray.